Good morning. I am not Dan Marshall. I am Andy Vanderveer, and my wife and I are over the uh, college and youth students here, and it is my real joy to get to uh, go through the Word with y'all today. So if I had to give a title to this sermon, it would be Hope for the Non-Feelers. But before I get into that, I should probably start with a confession uh, that I don't know if I was the only one, but after last week's sermon, I had to immediately uh, have a discussion with my wife because conviction had set in for her. I'm just kidding. You did for me. <laughs> what do you have to say? No, it was me. Uh, I don't know if you remember. He was in. We're in First John chapter four, and he had just preached on. Verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That call to love one another the way Jesus has loved us, following that pattern. And the thing that really got me is when he said this starts from a position of innocence. If we are to love the way Jesus loved us, it starts from a position of innocence and in our flesh, the deck is stacked against us. Because, I don't know if you're like me, but whenever we're in a fight, and it's time, the next step is reconciliation, whenever I am most innocent is when I am most tempted to stand way over here with my arms crossed and wait for her to initiate, you know, come to the realization of how wrong she is and approach me and make reconciliation, and for her to initiate reconciliation. And it's kind of like if I feel like I have a 50-50 share of the blame where I'm half innocent, half guilty, that's when I'm more likely to initiate and say, let's just... Let's just meet in the middle and agree, agree we're both awful and move on down the road. But that's not, it's, the more innocent I am, the more on the hook I am to love like Jesus. So the more primed I am to love like Jesus from that spot. And I, literally, the day before, it was the, the Saturday before church last Sunday, that we had... Or Friday, I don't remember. We were at Muya, Muya's, and we had <laughs> the most silent, awkward lunch. Uh, oh, you don't want me to share this? <laughs> Is that the okay? Um, okay. Um, the and we're twenty years into marriage, and we had this awkward, silent lunch because I was waiting for her to come to her senses and apologize because I was just convinced that I was right. I don't remember what we were arguing about. I didn't try very hard to remember because I'm sure it's humiliating for me. Uh, but we sat there and at Muya's and I waited because I was so right. I waited for her to apologize. And anyway, so I was very convicted. And after the sermon, I approached Kristen and I said, uh, I said, baby, I just need to apologize. And she saw it coming. And she said, no, 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 no. 
Oh, no, you don't. You don't apologize to me. You are not the innocent one. I'm the, you know, I'm the one that needs to be apologizing to you. It was awesome. But, you know, I thought that was kind of funny, but wouldn't that be a, an awesome way to live your life? What if all of us in our marriages, in our friendships, instead of, like, waiting for the other to approach or even running the other way, if we were trying to beat each other to the punch to reconcile and to apologize and to make things right, what if we were trying to one-up each other in that way? Wouldn't that be beautiful? You know what would happen? The love of God would be on vibrant display all the time. And we would see in each other and the world would see the love of Jesus on display. And this is so important because in 1 John, there's so many sort of litmus tests of you will know this by this. You will know, and one of the most prevalent ones sort of reiterated most, multiple times is you will know you're a child of God if love is flowing out of you. And it's a litmus test. You remember in science class when you would put the little piece of litmus paper in the little dish of the stuff, and if it turned one color, you're like, oh, that's an acid. If not, that's a base. And for John, it's very clear the litmus test is love. If, if there is love in you, coming out of you, you're a child of God. If not, you are not of God. And so if it's that important, don't you think it's important for us to know what love looks like? And that's where in verse 9, I'm going to review a little bit. We've got to go back a little bit before we move forward. Verse 9 gives us a picture of what love looks like. By this, the love of God is revealed in us. That God has sent his one and only son into the world. So here's the picture, the poster child, the epitome of what love is. Jesus on the cross. So that, so that word so that is answering the question, why? Why did he send his son? Why did he reveal love in that way and send Jesus to us? So that we may live through him. So among other things, what that phrase is doing is laying the groundwork for where he's going in this argument, in this logical flow of thought. To say Jesus didn't only come and wasn't sent to display love and then for love to stop there. No, it's meant for us to live through him and reproduce and reenact that love that was put on such vivid display for us. The idea is that love came to us in the person of Jesus and we with God and Christ abiding in us continue to love like he loved, that we would live through him. And then verse 10, and as I read this, see if you can remember the three parts to loving like Jesus loves from last week. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. That's that he took the initiative 
and he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And that's both that he paid the price, or you could say took the responsibility, took the guilt, and that he forgave. Y'all remember that from last week? That if we're going to love the way Jesus loves, we are going to take initiative to reconcile. We are going to take the guilt and we are going to give forgiveness. And we are to reproduce that and reenact that. And verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And why, by the way, the word ought to is most often in terms of a debt that is owed. Or you could say what God deserves from us. And why is it that that's so important to us, to him, that we put his love on display? Because God loves to reveal himself and to put himself on display and his love on display. And he wants to do that through us. He wants to put his love, he wants to put himself on display. But the problem is, verse 12, no one has ever seen God. See that? He wants to put himself on display, but no one's ever seen him. However, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The idea is you can't see God, but you can see us. You can't see God, but you can see his love. And notice, I love how it says, if we love one another, God abides in us. It's so black and white for John. If we love one another, God abides in us. If love, the love that is like the love of Jesus is flowing out of you, out of obedience, then it's so clear. God abides in you. This is not, this is like the exact opposite of Jeff Foxworthy, that he would say, if you dot, 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 you might be a redneck. You know, this is not like, if you are loving, you might be a Christian. It's not that. It's like, if you are loving... He does abide in you. It's so black and white for him. If you love one another, God abides in you. And God is love. So, of course, when he comes to live inside of you, he doesn't stop loving. He doesn't stop doing what he does and being who he is. So, you will love one another. And that comes from him abiding in you. And then that love is perfected or brought to its end goal, or here in context, it's very similar to saying his love is made visible here. You cannot see God, but you can see his love if we are loving one another the way that he loved us. And his love is put on display. So now that we know what love looks like, the question is, are we loving like that? That is what is so convicting and potentially discouraging. 
And I don't know how many of you are discouraged when you start to think down this path of thinking, wow, look at how high the standard is of how Jesus loved me. I'll never be able to do that. That's really hard. And yes, it's really hard. It's worse than that. It's completely impossible without God abiding in you. To love one another is only possible with God abiding in you, who is love. And some of you say, well, that's, that's the rub. That's where the rub is. You say, I have to have God abiding in me. And I don't know that that's true. God abiding in me. I certainly don't always act like it. And I don't feel God abiding in me. Is there any hope for the unfeelers, for those who do not feel? There is in verse 13. In case you're doubting, your ability to love the way Jesus loves because you're thinking, I know he says he lives in me, but I don't feel it, so I don't know if I can. This is the word for you. Verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So the summary of that verse is just simply that there is proof that he abides in us. And the proof that he abides in us is that he has given us his spirit. The proof is not that we feel his spirit. The proof is that he has given his spirit. And I'll dig more into that in a minute, but let's just take this piece by piece. Notice first that he says, we know. This is something that we as a community know and does not depend on your individual perception of this fact. And again, we're going to build on that more in a minute. But I just wanted to make sure you catch all the we's in here. By this, we know. And the word know is gnosko here. And you can't think about this. We can know a person or we can know a truth. It's this real, vital connection where I, I, I know Kristen. And I've just settled it in my brain. I know who she is. I have a connection in reality with her. And you can know a fact, a truth, that you perceive some data related to it and then have a cognitive understanding about that thing that in your mind, that is truth. And so now there is correspondence between that real thing in the world and how you conceive of it in your mind. It's true. And 
It's true. I know. And so he says, we know. How do we know? By this. And this is one of those phrases that John uses in 1 John eight times. This phrase that says, by this or in this, we know. Here's the formula. By this, we know blank that blank. It's, he says, by this, we know something is true. And then he'll tell what the this is that makes this thing true. Usually, he's saying, by this, we know that, we, that it's legit, that we actually abide in God, that we are a child of God, that we really are his. And then he'll give some proof to why we can know that. And here he says, by this, we know. What is this truth that we know? The truth that we know is that we abide in him. Now, I just want you to try to hear that phrase for the first time. We abide in him. We live in God. We remain in God. We stay in God. We exist in God. There was a time when I did not know my youngest son. And when he came to live with us, he brought all his stuff with him. Because he was here to stay. He wasn't a squatter. It wasn't temporary. And from this point on, he is mine and I am his. It's permanent. And so we abide with God bring all of our stuff (laughs) and he takes us as we are and he says you're mine and there's nothing temporary about it we abide in him and there's an and there that It gets better than that, yeah. And he is in us. So he shows up on the doorstep of our life with his stuff, which is his spirit. (laughs) And he says, I'm here to stay, to abide in you, to move in and take over, and I'm not going anywhere. And I bring my spirit with me. This is the truth that John says we know. We know that we know 
that we are in him for keeps and he is in us for keeps. And this is real, more real than anything that we can see with our or experience with our five senses or touch. It is real. The mutual abiding of us and God. This is true. That's what is true. And now the question is, how can we know that it's true? Look at the word because. That word because is pointing back to the this. He says, by this, we know that we abide in him. What's the this? It's because he has given us of his spirit. Okay. The reason we can know that we abide is because he has given. And the word he has given, that's the perfect tense. It's a verb that is, it's not simply, well, I was going to say future or past, but Greek is a little bit different in the timing, but it's a perfect verb, which means that it is this thing that happen, boom, back here as an anchor in the past. He has given. It's something that happened in the past with very real, ongoing, present ramifications. Present results from a, an event that is unshakably anchored in the past. That's the perfect tense of a verb. And he has given his spirit. This is the reason we can know, because he has given his spirit. And notice it says he has given us of his spirit. Or it could say more literally, he has given us out of his spirit or given us from his spirit which is a little bit different than saying he gave us his spirit. He doesn't say, he could have said he gave us his spirit, but he says he gave us from his spirit or gave us of his spirit. And this may sound a little strange, but it's a partitive genitive, which means he's given us part of his spirit. I know that sounds strange, but the emphasis is here that we have been given his spirit. There's not any one of us that has exclusively all of the spirit. We all have been given the spirit as his body, as one. And it reminds me of Genesis, when God created Adam, had this lump of dirt, and then that he gave his breath and brought that dirt ball to life, right? And with us, the moment that we believe, he gives us of his spirit, his breath, his spirit. And now we are an army of dirt balls, that are, <laughs> he has given us his spirit 
And when we were born again, born of him, our life is his spirit that he has given to us. He is our source of life. His spirit. His spirit is both the person and the means through which God lives and moves amongst his people. The Holy Spirit is the person and the means through which God lives and moves amongst his people. And the Holy Spirit is the person and the means through which Jesus himself lives and acts among his people. So whenever he says he has given us of his spirit, we should be thinking where his spirit goes, God goes. Where his spirit goes, Jesus goes. So if he has given us of his spirit, God abides in us. It's a settled fact based on the fact that he has given his spirit. And you say, well, that's great, but I don't feel that. I don't feel the spirit in me. And I know there's some of us in this room that have felt the Holy Spirit in us from two years old. And that's beautiful. And there's others of you that have beat yourselves up since you were two years old because you haven't. And then there's some of you like me that I go through seasons where sometimes I'm really feeling it and sometimes I'm just not. The good news is for you to know that he abides in you. You do not have to feel it. Your feeling does not determine the reality of what God has done. I think it'll be helpful to look in comparison at chapter 3, verse 24. So scan up or flip back a page maybe to chapter 3, verse 24. And this is going to sound like he's saying almost the exact same thing. First, I'm going to read 4.13 one more time so you can hear them back to back. 4.13 says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Now, verse 3.24, By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Okay, so see verse in verse 24 here. How do we know that he abides in us? By the Spirit. It's not, it's not specifically the giving of the Spirit here. Because whom he has given is a separate little phrase that is just clarifying which Spirit are we talking about. The Spirit whom he has given. But it says we know by the Spirit which means the Spirit is the one who helps us know here in verse 24. He's the means by which we know, or he helps us 
No, which makes sense. He's the Spirit who's going to lead us in all truth, helps us know. Or that the Spirit here is the active witness that gives us all of the knowledge and perhaps all the feels right here. That we would know that, we, that he abides and we in him because of the active work of the Spirit that we subjectively feel. If you were going to make that argument, you make it from verse 24, not from verse chapter 4, verse 13. I think both are true. When we sense the work of the Holy Spirit in us, it bears witness to the fact that God does abide in us. But that's not the only way that we can know. Look again at chapter 4, verse 13. How do we know in chapter 4, verse 13? It doesn't say, by his spirit. It says, because, or more literally, that he has given. There's a difference between the active work of the spirit and the fact that he has given us the spirit. Okay. Let me try, uh, let me try an example here. So, I could say, in this, I am helped by Kristen, whom God has given me. Like, I can think of a million different ways that she helps me in my life every day. And I'm so grateful that the Lord has given me Kristen. So I can say, in this, I am helped by Kristen. Then I'm thinking about all the different things that she does to help me. Or I could say, in this, I am helped. That God has given me Kristen. Just the fact that he has given her to me blows me away and helps me so much. It's the fact that she has been given. This is what's happening in chapter 4, verse 13. The fact that we have been given the Holy Spirit is how we know that he abides in us. This means if you don't always feel it, so what? If you want to know that he abides in you and you in him, you simply have to decide, do you believe that he has given us his spirit or not? Has he given his spirit or has he not? If I wanted to be a little more snarky, I could say, is Jesus a liar or is he not? And I, I could go through so many different ones, but I'll just say one, John 16, 7. He says, look, it's better if I go. He says, but if I go, I will send him 
to you. I will send the helper. I will send. Is Jesus a liar or is he not? Did he send the spirit? This is not about what you feel. It's about who he is and his character and what he said. And does he do what he says he does? Will do. And also I want you to notice, this is pretty significant. This would be a lot different if the verse said, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given you of his spirit. Then you would have to decide Did he give me his spirit? I don't feel it. I see it in her and him and all of them over there. I see it in them, but I don't know about me. But that's not what's in question here. We know that he abides in this, that he has given his spirit to us. Us. So if you find yourself teetering back and forth on this fence all the time, it's time for you to get off the fence and decide once and for all. It's an all or nothing. Has he given his spirit to all of us who believe or has he given it to none of us? This is what we have to decide if we believe. It's harder for me sometimes. This is still, I'm hoping this is making sense. This is, so, this is such good news to me. Because sometimes it's harder for me to believe that he has given me the spirit. When I look at my actions and my feelings. But if the question is not, do I have the spirit? If I fe- do I feel the spirit? If the question is, Has he given believers his spirit? Yes, obviously, of course. This is how, okay, then if it's yes, he does abide in me. I don't feel it. So what? If he's given his spirit, he lives in you and you in him. We in him. See, I did it again. The you instead of the we. If he has given his spirit, he lives in us and we in him. This is an objective question about his people, his community, not a subjective question about an individual. I'm saying if you struggle with your faith in this area, quit making it about you. Make it about God's word and what he said he's done for his people. And then look at verse 14. I'm going to start this verse, but let Dan finish it. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his son. 
The word we here in the Greek is in the, the word order there, makes it emphatic or intensive. So it's more like saying, we, on the other hand, we, however, have seen. So this is, now the we is John and the apostles who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. So first he's saying, you guys are not physical eyewitnesses of the Lord. We, however, see, you haven't seen, you have to decide if you believe. We, however, we have seen the Lord and we testify that the father has sent his son. So it's as if John here is saying, look, maybe you don't feel the abiding God in you. Maybe you don't feel the spirit. Maybe you haven't seen the things we've seen. But you don't have to because you're a part of us and we have seen. You you are a part of the fellowship of those who have seen. Hang on to that idea. We don't have to see with physical eyes because we're part of the fellowship of those who have through his spirit. And turn all the way back to chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1. And remember what he said about this fellowship. John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, who... uh, Okay, so John, you know, he also wrote John 1, which is in the beginning was the what? Word, yes. So when he says beginning, he's talking about the word, which is whom? Yeah, that's Jesus. So in that which was from the beginning which we have heard and seen with our eyes, that's again Jesus, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands at Jesus, concerning the word of life, that's Jesus. Verse two, the life was made manifest when in his incarnation, that's Jesus, and we have seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So he's saying, we saw him. We touched him, we felt him, and we proclaim him to you. Verse three, that which, meaning Jesus, the life, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? Why is he proclaiming to them? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. We don't have to have seen Jesus or felt anything. We just have to have fellowship with him. And our fellowship is not based on tangibly seeing or feeling anything. Our fellowship is based on faith. We look at what he has said. 
and we decide, is it true or not? Do I believe it or do I not? Do I surrender to him or do I not? So if you're having trouble putting the love of Jesus on display, the first thing I want you to do is look deep inside and ask, have I surrendered to Jesus? Which is a little bit different than I'm having trouble loving, I better work harder at loving so that he'll finally abide in me. It's not that. If he's abiding, you will love. So you go back to surrender to Jesus. I'm not loving. I don't know what to do. Start with give your life to Jesus. And he will give of his spirit and will live in you. Then I ask you to submit to the truth. Put yourself under that truth that he does abide in you, whether you feel it or not. Because he has, perfect tense, given us his spirit. We just need to believe it. That's how we can know that he abides in us. One of my favorite ways to mess with students is when um, uh, we're looking at the book of Philippians and say, look at this. Look what Paul says. I count everything loss. I let go of everything for the sake, for the all-surpassing value of feeling Jesus. That's not what it says, does it? The all-surpassing value of knowing Christ. The one thing of highest value for him that's worth trading in everything is to know Christ. You can know him. You can meet him through faith and surrender. And you can cling to that and not be discouraged when the feelings ebb and flow. He is true. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your self-sacrifice. You came to be savior of the world. Thank you, God, for demonstrating your love by sending your son, Jesus, and showing us what love looks like. And we repent of making our faith and our lives too much about our individual feelings. We as a family right now repent and turn to you and we confess that we will stand on the truth of who you said you are and what you have said that you have done. 
You have sent your spirit. And we're in awe of that. And we thank you for that. Let the thought of you taking up residence in us never grow old. Will you continue to stun us with that reality? And when we are not stunned, (laughs) let us just fall back on your rock-solid truth of what you've done. We're so grateful. I'm so grateful that it's not up to me to feel all the things. And forgive us for when we have idolized feeling. And Lord, forgive us for when we have avoided feeling. I pray that this would just be something where we completely remove all the pressure from ourselves to feel stuff. Because a lot of times whenever we remove that pressure is when we are free to experience all that you do or don't want to send our way. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. Amen.